I probably don't have to tell you this, but we live in a world that often feels indifferent and cruel. It contains a myriad of things that make me feel terrified and sad, especially lately. And whenever the weight of the world seems overwhelming to me, I will often watch something like Terror of Mechagodzilla. Its silliness reminds me that the world is still capable of instilling joy, uh, however briefly. So, for this episode, we're going to be talking about Terror of Mechagodzilla, the last film in the franchise's Showa period, and arguably one of the goofiest, and yes, I know that's saying something. While I don't think this is going to be the last Godzilla film we talk about, we will be talking about how Terror of Mechagodzilla connects with the rest of the franchise, and what the appeal of these ridiculous movies even are to begin with. My name is Ryan, it's a real deep dive. Joining me on this episode is my sister Cheryl, welcome back. Thank you for having me. Now, you're not a huge Godzilla person? Yeah, no, I'm I'm a small Godzilla person. Just teed myself up for that one. <laughs> but uh, you found yourself liking this one. I did, I did. Um, honestly, I really didn't like... I mean, you gotta like Mothra. You gotta like some aspects of like Gamera, but like... I wasn't the biggest fan of the movies, but I, it turns out I like them a lot better when they're not dubbed. Yeah, we're a sub, not dub household, and while we were small children and Godzilla films were, you know, being rerun on the Disney Channel and such and so, you got those uh, terrible English language dubbings that so many lazy sketch comedy and cartoons have made fun of. I find them infinitely more charming when you watch the Japanese cut with the Japanese actors and just English subtitles underneath. Yeah, it certainly helps to sell the film when you've got actors that actually care about it doing the voice work. Okay, so plot of this film, uh, it is a direct sequel to Godzilla vs. Mechagodzilla from the previous year. And as such, the film opens with the Interpol agents searching for remnants of the destroyed Mechagodzilla at the bottom of the Okinawa Sea. And you were instantly charmed by the model submarine. It's so cute and tiny! I felt that if nothing else, you would like the scale model work. Movie. Now, they're searching for fragments to gather data about the aliens who built uh, Mechagodzilla, but they can't find it. And then, their submarine is attacked by a giant aquatic dinosaur called Titanosaurus. Interpol-affiliated marine biologist Akira Ikenose traces Titanosaurus to Dr. Shinzo Mafune, a reclusive mad scientist who first speculated about the existence of the dinosaur while he was doing experiments on controlling animals with like radio wave devices. He was laughed out of academia, which is interesting because this is a universe where giant dinosaurs emerge from the ocean and attack Tokyo every year and a half. While visiting uh, Mifune's home in the seaside forest of uh, Manazuru, uh, he meets Katsura, Mifune's daughter. She informs him that her father is dead and that his notes on Titanosaurus have been destroyed. However, she's lying. Mifune is actually alive and, embittered by societal rejection, collaborating with space aliens from Black Hole Third Planet. <laughs> the most Sailor Moon named villains ever. Yeah, they want to conquer the Earth by rebuilding a bigger and badder version of Mechagodzilla, and Mifune has used his animal control device to bring the typically docile Titanosaurus under his control. Things get complicated for everyone when Ichinose winds up pushing Katsura into visiting his submarine mission in order to uh, discover Titanosaurus and thus vindicating her father. Through their various meetups, he unwittingly divulges Interpol's knowledge about Titanosaurus, Mechagodzilla, and the aliens, only letting it slip that they have discovered that 
Titanosaurus is vulnerable to supersonic radio waves. This man should never have been hired by this government. Yeah, he's just throwing state secrets at the first pretty lady who flashes her glowing green eyes at him. <laughs> you see, it is then revealed that Katsura is a cyborg embedded with a control device for Titanosaurus. And she was mortally wounded in a freak accident. Uh, the aliens then revealed themselves immediately after the accident to Mifune and offered to save her. Because he doesn't believe in lab safety. Yeah, he didn't ground any of his wires or anything. And furthermore, he is not the least bit suspicious that the aliens show up the instant that his daughter is mortally wounded. Like, literally, she has just hit the ground and they open the door and walk in. They don't even say hi. Yeah, she's like, who are you? Why are you carrying my daughter away? Eager for vengeance on humanity, Mifune uh, unleashes Titanosaurus on uh, Yokosuka without consulting the aliens beforehand. However, Interpol has employed their supersonic waves, and they manage to stem the attack. Katsura shows up to sabotage the advice, but then Godzilla enters the fray and causes Titanosaurus to retreat into the sea. This uh, ultimately happens when Interpol confronts Katsura and shoots her, and she falls off a cliff, and then Titanosaurus is immediately disinterested in the fight and leaves. He just wants to go home. Yeah, this whole movie is Titanosaurus wanting to go home. Ichinose, who is still insistent that Katsura is not connected to Titanosaurus' rampage in a bad way, although his Interpol buddy is, you know, wise to that, he shows up. All of the evidence pointing contrary. Yeah, he comes to Mifune's house and is instantly captured by the aliens. And he is then tied up with a jump rope with some really kinky knot binding. He is, he is helpless as Titanosaurus and Mechagodzilla, who's been merged with Katsura's brainwaves in order to create the perfect cyborg super soldier, are sent to trash Tokyo. Interpol scrambles to repair the supersonic wave oscillator as the army is completely impotent in the wake of the monsters. Ikenose is equally unable to dissuade a mind-controlled Katsura from guiding the monsters on their rampage. Godzilla comes to the rescue as the monsters threaten to stomp on some children. These, uh, like, grade school kids are running away going, save us, Godzilla! And since this is a late-period Godzilla film in the Showa period, Godzilla's a superhero. Absolutely needs to save those kids. So I have to say, one of those kids was really shitty and deserved to get stepped on. Titanosaurus is at first distracted by the repaired supersonic wave oscillator, leaving Godzilla free to focus his wrath on Mechagodzilla. While this is going on, Interpol has started raiding Mifune's compound. Godzilla is waylaid by the two monsters when they are free, and uh, they end up giving him a good whooping. Titanosaurus can kick up windstorms with his tail, and Mechagodzilla just, he, he's able to shoot lasers out of every part of his body. Belly button, knees, eyes, mouth, you name it. Yeah, they, they bury Godzilla in a crater, and then Titanosaurus starts stomping on him like he's trying to make Godzilla wine. <laughs> It's just, like, such a shitty thing to do when he's buried and dead. He's just like, now I'm gonna keep jumping. Interpol comes in, they uh, rescue Ikenose, they kill Mifune, and they cause the aliens to flee. This gives Godzilla an opportunity to rise up out of his crater and just start <laughs> fucking shit up. He's <laughs> such a sassy little, like, jump out, I'm back! And atomic fire breath everywhere. Uh, after coming to her senses, uh, Katsura embraces uh, Ikinose because they're in love now. Yeah, because they've, you know, fallen in love over the lengthy multiple several hours they've spent together. 
if you know, Jose very tenderly tells her that I, I don't care if you're a cyborg, I still love you. And she's like, kill me. Katsura knows that the only way to stop Mechagodzilla is if she dies. So while there's a sort of sobbing into each other and she's overcoming her robotic programming to uh, be a woman again, she picks up a little ray gun, just shoots herself in the chest. After this, Mechagodzilla goes completely offline, in which case Godzilla just picks him up and just, nope, just <laughs> nopes him right across the countryside. Yeet, as our nephew would say. Titanosaurus it immediately comes to its own senses, and he's like, where the hell am I? Oh, shit. I'm just gonna go home, right? Godzilla's like, nah. No. Nah, <laughs> shit out of you. Yeah, whatever Godzilla's face is saying is something across the lines of, motherfucker, and just lights Titanosaurus <laughs> on fire, just kicks him, and just throws him into the ocean. And then he explodes. Yeah, yeah, Titanosaurus explodes as he hits the water. Which you have to appreciate. Be there. He just wanted to go home. Ikenose drags Katsuda's body out into a field while all his inner coal buddies look on, and then Godzilla triumphantly wanders back into the scene. End film. You're going home! <laughs> right, let's talk about the production of this film. Kaiju films have been falling out of favor for some time by 1975. This is uh, worsened by the 1970s energy crisis, it should hampered film and TV production and affected this film's budget. More on that in a bit. Godzilla vs. Mechagodzilla had been a bit more successful than the preceding Godzilla sequels, so producer uh, Tomoyuki Tanaka pushed to use Mechagodzilla again in the next film, which feels a little desperate. Production started about four months after Godzilla vs. Mechagodzilla had premiered. So the, the sets were fresh? The screenwriter of the film, Yukiko Takeyama, was only the second woman to work on a Godzilla screenplay and the first to do so without credited co-writers. She had given a script proposal as part of a contest and, and uh, Tanaka liked her story so much that he hired her to flesh out the teleplay on her own without handing it off to one of the typical screenwriters for a Godzilla film. The screenplay went through three revisions before filming. The plot itself was mostly unaltered. The changes were done usually for budgetary reasons. They included initially Titanosaurus is going to be two dinosaurs that then merge together to become a super dinosaur. And the final climactic battle between Godzilla, Titanosaurus, and Mechagodzilla was supposed to remain in Tokyo, requiring many more scale models of buildings. And in the film, the kaiju began tussling in the city, but then quickly moved to the countryside where it was cheaper. Takayama lobbied to have Ashiro Honda direct the film. Honda was the director of the very first Godzilla in 1954, and he did a number of the other uh, kaiju sequels, but it had been a while since he tackled one. Honda's wife claimed that he agreed to take on the project since Takayama was also from Yamagata, but it was also true that, once again, Honda hadn't worked for a while, and he probably needed the money. Honda later expressed that Takayama's feminine perspective brought fresh ideas to the kaiju genre, and he regretted that he uh, wasn't able to collaborate with her again. Kensho Yamashita was hired to be the assistant director, but he found that uh, Hondo wasn't delegating much shooting to him. After a lengthy fallow period, Honda seemed eager to get back into things and start shooting some more. While this film is a rush job, Honda was a professional. He had decades of experience. I think the film flows very nicely. There's effective uses of split screen to bring in the stock footage of other monsters. Whenever a character remembers something that another character says, there's like a double exposure of their face repeating the dialogue, which I thought was a nice touch. 
It was pretty cute. It was very 70s. Yeah, and the various monsters punching each other. It's a ridiculous fight. Every time Titanosaurus kicks Godzilla, he ends up flying like to the other side of the set. <laughs> and it's adorable, but it's well-paced. Yes. I also really like um, the physical acting of the people in the suits because they keep doing like the Power Rangers like repositioning moves right before they start running at each other. It was pretty cute. Yes, they do. And uh, the way that the, the people from Black Hole Third Planet salute each other in their evil alien scheme is to do a salute, but across their chest, like Mecha Godzilla does it before he runes out. <laughs> this wound up being Ashira Honda's last film. He spent the rest of his career as an assistant director and second unit person for uh, Akira Kurosawa, especially on his uh, later period masterpieces, including uh, Kajimusha, Ran, Dreams... Dreams is my favorite Kurosawa film. Yes, I know that's an iffy choice to make, but I will die on that hill. Rhapsody in August and uh, Matadoyo, which is uh, Kurosawa's last film. Unlike a lot of other Godzilla films, the monster action is spread pretty evenly throughout the film. You see Titanosaurus within the first five minutes of the movie, uh, as opposed to just about every other one where it's mostly the humans running around. You don't care about them because it's a humans in a giant monster movie. And then all the uh, kaiju fighting is in backloaded into the last third. I always thought that was an odd complaint when the 2014 Godzilla came out and it was paced exactly the same way. And I was like, yeah, you're probably not too familiar with Godzilla movies if you're Main complaint is that all the boring human stuff is in the first two acts and you don't get any like decent monster fight until the last 20 minutes that's just how they roll i mean could you imagine if it was the other way the first part like of the movie is godzilla and then afterwards it's just people for the rest of it and while this isn't like high drama i do believe that the human plots were actually more interesting than they usually are compelling i want to know what's going to go on with that broken family the doom cyborg love story it's it's more than like i'm a plucky photographer who wants to take pictures of mothra oh look there's mothra and then i'm going to give a speech about the environment as mothra flies away that's my character arc as a human in this mothra film yeah, it was more like, I want vengeance. Why? Uh, my mom was poor. What? I love you. Since when? A cheaper Godzilla suit intended for public appearances, like, I don't know if Godzilla had to open a mall or something, was used for the water scene since the crew was afraid that uh, water would damage the nicer suits that they had for the fight bits. There is a scene where Godzilla charges at Mechagodzilla as he's, like, shooting lasers and missiles out of his fingers and his eyes and his belly button, and I think some went out of his kneecaps for some reason. There's a part where the back of Godzilla catches on fire, and that wasn't on purpose. But it did look really cool. Yeah, they kept the shot. Katsumi Nimiyamoto, who uh, wore the Titanosaurus suit, he often was requested to put it on backwards in certain shots in order to make the movements appear more natural. Usually the bits for Titanosaurus is spinning around and then using his tailwind powers. And they kept throwing firecrackers at this poor man. And they were landing right where his face would be. So, like, good for him that that was the back of his head, at least. The Mechagodzilla design was modified from the character's previous appearance to make him more angular and pointy. Uh, also, on his belt, it was changed from MG to MG2. Because they rebuilt him, right? Yeah, yeah, they rebuilt him. That's so cute! <laughs> This film was shot over the course of one month, which is also pretty typical for a Toho Godzilla film from this period. Now, let me talk more about the monsters before we go on. First off, uh, Titanosaurus. 
Titanosaurus marked a change in this. This was an attempt to have a more realistic scare quotes monster following a series of more outright creatures such as Gigan and Megalon, which Toho considered embarrassments. There are some Gigan stands. There are people who enjoy Gigan, but yeah, Gigan's silly. What is Gigan? Gigan has like the bird beak with the Cyclops unit eye, and he has hooks for hands. And oh, I know that one. Yeah, this he has a buzz saw in the middle of his belly. Yeah, he's like a like a weird scyther. Titanosaurus was named after a real dinosaur, although there isn't much resemblance. And Titanosaurus is only a realistic looking dinosaur monster if you compare him to say Gigan. He looks kind of like a sea monkey. Yeah, you commented that the submarine was destroyed by a giant seahorse. Yep. Uh, Titanosaurus's noises are uh, modified elephant trumpets and horse snorts, made more squeaky. Yeah. Titanosaurus is not a particularly well-regarded uh, kaiju. Terror of Mechagodzilla is his only film appearance, although some stock footage from this film is used in Godzilla Final Wars in 2004, because all of the kaiju are in that one. Like get somebody back in the costume, they no. just flip it. No, they just yeah recycled an old clip. Now, more famously, there's Mechagodzilla. Uh, in retrospect, it's a little odd that it took until 1974 for Godzilla to fight a robotic doppelganger. Post-war Japan was really into robotics, both in terms of actual science and just pop culture in general. They were very popular in anime, especially in the mid-70s, because the movements were a little cheaper to animate. Robots themselves can be stiff and angular, like your beloved Gigantor. Gigantor. Best theme song ever. Yeah, and Mechagodzilla himself was more cost-effective than Megalon or Gigan. But, yeah, he wasn't even the first robotic kaiju. Toho briefly had the King Kong license in 1967 called King Kong Escapes. That featured a robotic Kong doppelganger, and his name was Mechanicong, which is a delightful name. <laughs> Again, I maintain it sounds like he should be fighting Donkey Kong. You asked me if Mechanicong had a red tie. Yeah, because Donkey Kong's got a red tie. You realize that sued Nintendo over that, right? But they lost. Because Nintendo was defended by an American lawyer named Kirby. Yeah, it's just like everybody calls monkeys Kong. Good story. The initial character designs for Mechagodzilla, uh, one person proposed that he was just going to be completely pink, and another person decided that Mechagodzilla should be rainbow-colored. Oh, yeah! Uh, instead, Mechagodzilla is sort of a steel metal thing, and his lasers are rainbow-colored. Yeah, it's just Rainbow Road shooting out his face. They're really into the rainbow death rays because those took apparently twice as long to rotoscope as any of the other energy beams used in this film. Yeah, just spent a lot of time animating the various colors. It was a really good hue adjustment between the two, them. So, like, you know, that's, yeah, I get it. It was worth it. Now, in this film and in the preceding one, Mechagodzilla is constructed by aliens in order to destroy the Earth. In his subsequent appearances, he is built by humans in Japan in order to defend the island against kaiju. No explanation proffered. At least he's not hunting mutants. And then finally, we have Godzilla himself. This is the last film where Godzilla is depicted as heroic until Godzilla Final Wars, which in that one, they're sort of rationalizing that Godzilla is territorial, so if evil aliens show up, his goals are going to happen to coincide with the humans. Yay! 
Now, if you know even a little bit about Godzilla, you know that his first film appearance, he's an obvious allegory for the American bombings of uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki. However, after the third or fourth one, where he's still a heel, uh, the character started catching on more with children that ended up being the most reliable audience for this franchise. And he sort of gradually became less monstrous and more of a protagonist and in this one as i said he's just a flat-out superhero it's really kind of cute too they make his eyes really big and bright and you know, like the way he like he little fist bumps himself when he's ready for action oh yeah <laughs> less interestingly let's talk about the humans because kaiju movies feel the need to have humans even though they're not the reason we watch these they all had our father's haircut for most of our childhood yeah, Dad picked a haircut in 1975, and he kept it until about 1997. So forever, anytime I see it, it's the long top with the side part. Anytime I see it, I'm like, oh, it's my daddy! And all the middle-aged Japanese people in leisure suits have Dad's haircut, except with more hairspray. Yeah, and then they wear suits that look like the ones that he had to wear for, like, christenings and weddings and stuff. Yeah, the first person we can talk about is Katsuhiko Sasaki as Akira. He first appeared in Godzilla vs. Megalon two years prior, and then later on appeared in Godzilla vs. Biollante in 1989, and Godzilla vs. King Ghidorah in 1991. So, we did a couple of these. He's fine. Once again, I thought the scene where he told Katsura that he didn't care that she was a cyborg, he still loved her anyways, was more tender than that scene deserved. Yeah, I mean, you believed it for a second, and you were like, wait, but how do you know each other again? So like, yeah, he's a good actor. The most interesting human character in this is probably uh, Tomoko Ai as Katsura. Takeyama considered Katsura the heart of the film, and it was very important for Katsura to retain her human emotions at the film's climax and to have her arc be a struggle between the robotic nature of her cyborg realignment going up against her heart and her heart winning at the end. And she didn't really care about any of the script revisions, provided she was allowed to keep that arc in there. Now, I arrived late to her audition, and she was not asked to recite lines. The staff asked her seemingly nonsensical and irrelevant questions, and then started commenting on her strange appearance. That seems rude. Yeah, they negged her into a job, essentially. It's like, unnecessarily rude. Ashiro Honda was usually more focused on Second Union special effects stuff, and just had his human actors do whatever, which often comes across. <laughs> but... In this film, he gave Ice very specific instructions. He told her to speak robotically and paid an unusual level of attention to her line readings. He kept wanting her to give certain lines very coldly, which definitely comes across in her performance. And this is as good a time as any to mention that this is one of the few Godzilla films that has brief nudity in it, sort of. <laughs> See, when Katsura falls off the cliff and needs to be operated on by the black hole third planet aliens again, she's on the operating table and the a area underneath her chest is being cut open for them to like play with her heart and all the wires and stuff. And you see mannequin boobies. They're like no good because they have like a strip of fabric right above them and then like below her stomach and they're not, I don't know, it seemed excessive. It's an extremely odd creative choice because at this point, the bulk of the money being made by these Godzilla films was in drive-in movie theaters and late-night television broadcasts in Western Europe and North America, which are regions that are going to take umbrage at that. 
Yeah, I, I can't imagine they didn't cut the scene. Yes, they cut the scene. The last human I wanted to talk about was Akihiko Hirata. He was Dr. Shinji Mifune. The guy with the white hair? Yeah, the guy with the unconvincing white hair and Colonel Sanders mustache. Oh yeah, Colonel Sanders. He has the strongest kaiju resume into this film. He actually played Dr. Daisuke uh, Serizawa, the disturbed young scientist who invented the oxygen destroyer in 1954's Godzilla, the very first one. He's the guy with the eye patch. Oh, that's nice. He got to come back. Oh, he kept coming back. He has a lot of films on his resume, most notably Hiroshi uh, Inagaki's Samurai Trilogy, and he also has a supporting role in Akira Kurosawa's Sanjuro. However, uh, before this film, he also appeared in Rodan, The Mysterians, The H-Man, Varen the Unbelievable, Mothra, Gorath, King Kong vs. Godzilla, Atragon, Ghidorah the Three-Headed Monster, Ibira, Horror of the Deep, Son of Godzilla, Ultraman, and Godzilla vs. Mechagodzilla, and he's playing a mad scientist in almost all of them. Because while there's definitely typecasting in Western cinema, it can't hold a candle to Asian cinema. If you play a certain character in a Japanese or Chinese movie, in a lot of cases, you're going to be doing that guy for the rest of your life. I mean, at least you get work. Moving on, I want to talk a little bit about the music, which is pretty readily identifiable. Like every other preceding Godzilla film, this was composed by uh, Akiar uh, Ifukube. As I mentioned to Cheryl earlier, he is responsible for creating the Godzilla roar. He did this by taking a leather glove coated with resin and rubbing it along the loosened strings of a stand-up double bass. Madman. Terror of Mechagodzilla, if nothing else, is noteworthy for being the first sequel in the Godzilla franchise to reprise what is now considered Godzilla's theme music. You know, dun 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 Okay, it's got kind of like an action movie vibe to it. I'm driving. That motif was originally meant to be associated with the Japanese self-defense forces in the 1954 film, but it gradually became Godzilla music, kind of like the Imperial March. It's just Darth Vader now. Yep, yep. Okay, it worked. And moving on to the film's reception, it got mostly positive notices. It was seen as a fun kids movie by most of the people who saw it. However, it is the lowest grossing Godzilla film ever made. Uh, it sold 980,000 tickets in Japan, which is the worst in franchise history. Just about every other Godzilla film sells at least a million tickets. So people really did not like the seahorse. It might have just been franchise fatigue. The preceding film had come out 21 years before, and they made 15. Dang. After this, Toho put the franchise on hold, figuring that they should give audiences a chance to miss Godzilla before they make a new one. Proposals were made throughout the rest of the 70s, but we didn't get another Godzilla movie until 1984, the character's 30th anniversary, with what is known as the return of Godzilla uh, in America called Godzilla 85. And that is a completely different era in Godzilla. The terror of Mechagodzilla is the last in what is known as the Showa period. Godzilla iterations are identified by whoever happens to be the Emperor of Japan at the time. This isn't the complete end of this particular leg of the franchise because Takayama wrote a short story sequel to this film called 2075, Meister Titano's Counterattack. It takes place 100 years after the film and it features a resurrected Katsura and a cyborg Titanosaurus. 
So they're both cyborgs together. They're both cyborgs together. Cyborg best friends. Terror of Mechagodzilla got a number of home video releases. It was the only 1970s Godzilla film to get an English language dub and re-released by the Saperstein Group, which, as we discussed earlier, Cheryl's not a fan of their work. Uh, yeah. They largely kept to terror of Mechagodzilla aside from the dubbing. The only exception, they had a 10-minute montage of Godzilla's greatest fights leading up to the beginning of the film, which is why the American edit is about 10 minutes longer. I know that that should sound really cool, but that just sounds kind of like boring since it's just out of nowhere. In this one, we do have a montage of the fight between Godzilla and Mechagodzilla in the uh, preceding film, so it's just a longer montage. Yeah, I mean, like, I don't know, I'd probably lose my attention. And like every other Godzilla film in the show-up period, this was included in a 2019 Criterion box set. So yes, the Terror of Mechagodzilla is in the Criterion collection. With like, um, Casablanca? Casablanca is not in the Criterion collection. No? Nope. Um. You know what, the selection for it is actually fairly arbitrary. The idea is that they take a whole bunch of important, influential, and aesthetically significant films, but that could mean anything. Casablanca's not one of those? It depends on who they have distribution deals with. They have a distribution deal with Toho. They established that because they wanted, you know, The Seven Samurai and all those other Kurosawa films. But Godzilla is also a Toho property. So, yeah, why not? You get a Toho. Yeah. Just to remind you, Michael Bay has two films in the Criterion Collection. What films? The Rock and Armageddon. Okay, now as you uh, keep things from wandering off completely, let's cycle back to the themes. And the first thing I wanted to talk about was, what is the appeal of this franchise anyways? Rainbow, gaydar, laser things. That's a good theory. It's not like other franchises where, you know, let's say you're you're 25 and you've just, you didn't watch the Indiana Jones movies when you were a kid. It's not unusual to be like, okay, I'm going to check a shower Raiders of the Lost Ark. I hear it's an important film. I mean, how many 25-year-olds are like, hey, I'm going to watch those 70-year-old Godzilla movies. I'm going to check out those rubber suit monster fight things. I'm sure there's going to be some subgroup. I mean, there's got to be at least a couple, but most Godzilla fans I know of, they rubbed up against the character at some point in their early childhood, and they got attached to him that way, and they just sort of hung around. Yeah, that sounds about right. And it's hard for people to get into this because there are a lot of them. And unless you're a big fan, they're pretty samey. It's pretty similar to, say, 80s hair metal bands or kung fu movies. Or if you've seen one, you've seen most of them. It's just a rearrangement of the components you expect from it. But I do think that means that Godzilla might be the most consistent film franchise of all time. Because Star Wars will occasionally let you down. James Bond will occasionally let you down. Godzilla promises you a guy in a rubber suit stomping on toy tanks. And it delivers every single time. Like, this is considered one of the lesser films, and it does exactly what it tells you it's going to do. It was a delight. It was a fun little romp. Talked a little bit about the struggle to get people to care about the humans in a kaiju movie. Make them a cyborg. That seems to be a way to go. And while this film has wandered quite far from its initial point of atomic peril, because, as I've said on numerous previous episodes, every science fiction film made during the Cold War is about nuclear paranoia. It's still there. It's still there a little bit. They also talk a little bit about eco-horror because that's an important secondary feature in Godzilla films. The most recent one is very much an eco-horror fable. Uh, yeah, there's a little one where the, where the characters are talking about like, hey, let's help the environment. Okay, we, we made that pass. Let's get back to the things at hand. Yeah, weren't the 
aliens trying to take over Earth because we weren't taking care of the environment or something? That's how they were rationalizing it. I think they wanted to take over Earth because they were from Black Hole Third Planet, which implies that Third Planet got sucked into a black hole. They need a new planet. Better that they were three planets away from a black hole, which uh, also you need a new planet. For all her virtues, I don't think Takayama fully embraced what a black hole does. I can think of is like the Beatles. I've got a hole in my pocket. <laughs> Another thing I want to talk about was the saturation of the market, because unlike, say, American films, uh, American films weren't shy about beating sequels to the, uh, at people, but even when it came to, like, slasher movies, they would wait a year, whereas whenever Toho did something that worked, they would just drive it into the ground, just make as many as they can get away with until people got tired of it. And they do space out the Godzilla movies a bit more now. I think they made one in 2015, and then the next one was 2018. Because right? I, I think I saw both of them in theaters. Godzilla isn't even the most flagrant uh, example of this. Uh, probably Zatoichi. He has almost a hundred movies. And like I said, uh, production on this one began four months after uh, Godzilla against Mechagodzilla, and that was not even considered unusual. That's the full extent of my notes. Uh, is there anything about Terror of Mechagodzilla that we have yet to discuss that you would like to mention before we sign off? That Mechagodzilla has adorable little Astro Boy rocket booties. Oh, and also whenever he flies, it looks like he's doing a Naruto run. <laughs> but he's also got his little, like, Godzilla belly. It's adorable. <laughs> he looks like a baked potato that's been wrapped in tinfoil just rocketing across the screen. Oh, boy. All right. And uh, I think that's as good to know to uh, leave things on as it is. Thanks for listening. Uh, we will see you next time.